Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. For today's message, I just want to give a little credit up front. We're pulling kind of a general outline from J.D. Greer as well as a lot of ideas for content in this message from Tim Keller and Entry Right. So I just want to say an appreciation to them and let's jump in. We're talking about Paul's letter to the Romans. Why do we want to do this book? Well, the greatest leaders of of Christian uh, history for the last 2,000 years have declared Romans uh, very likely the most important theological book ever written. Augustine uh, said of Romans that it dispelled all his shadows of doubt. John Calvin said of Romans, the entrance to all the most hidden treasures of scriptures are found in this letter. Martin Luther said of Romans that the most important piece of the New Testament is Romans and that it is impossible to read, study, or ponder, or meditate on it too much. He actually went on to call Romans' central premise that we are justified by faith alone as the doctrine on which the church and our faith will rise or fall, period. It's that important. It can be a challenging book to understand as well. I mean, even look at the Apostle Peter who, says, who writes in one of his letters, there are some things Paul shares that are hard to understand, he says. So it can be challenging. I've pastored Quest now for over 12 years, and I've yet to preach book to the book from cover to cover. We've touched on it a lot in different series, but this is possibly my favorite book of the whole Bible. It is deep. It has some of the greatest, most well-argued theological concepts of any book in all the Bible, and yet it is so extremely practical and enlightening. This book, this letter to the Romans, explains our reality in which we live. It solves the problems of judgment and love like no other book. It relatably describes our human struggle. It gives clarity to the solution of all the struggles that we face in our lives and how to approach solving them. It describes how we grow as people and in our faith while addressing very practical, everyday ways we can live out the gospel. All of it is done in a way that pulls no punches. He's a really direct guy, a really direct writer. At Quest, we're in a season now where we're trying to focus on on really going deep in our faith, to know more fully why we believe what we believe, and to no longer live as consumer Christians, but rather Christians who compellingly live in the power and the presence of God. If you've not yet decided to follow Jesus and you're here today or you're listening online, this series can bring you so much more understanding of God's love and the decision and the commitment that you need to consider and make if you're going to become a follower and be a follower of Jesus. In Romans, Paul powerfully addresses the most important questions of the everyday person with meticulous logic and shows us that the gospel is the only answer to our questions and the only real solution to our problems. The whole book is talking about the gospel from cover to cover, the good news. It's describing it and how God saves us and what that salvation brings and means to us. Jeremy last week shared the thesis statement for the letter. For the entire letter last week, it's in Romans 1, it says this, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You could also be saying Columbus, Ohio. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
The gospel is the power of God. It doesn't say it contains the power of God or channels it. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the one thing in the New Testament other than God himself that is referred to directly as the power of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul is so devoted to it. The gospel is not a new strategy on how to live life. It is the power of God. It gives the power to change. It gives us the power to create, to redeem, to heal, and bring back the dead. Now, now, now some of you may be thinking, because the gospel has been used in all your life in church, I know the gospel, and I think maybe I'm going to be bored by this series. I get it. And yet Peter says this, he says, It was revealed to them, the prophets of old he's referring to, that they were serving not themselves, but you, us, here, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then this is really interesting. Things into which angels long to look. Angels. Those beings who had been with God and watched him create the heavens and the earth and do all the miracles of anyone, the angels could have had the attitude that a typical teen who's unaffected by anything, who regularly says, you can't impress me, might have. Yet the angels still long to press into the love of God seen in the good news of the gospel. That doesn't sound boring to me. So if you think you might be bored by this whole letter on the, that we're going to talk about that describes the gospel, there is something and maybe a great deal you are missing in understanding what that word gospel really looks like in life. Martin Luther said to progress in the Christian life is to begin again. Now, not with new facts, but to grow intimately familiar with these truths of the gospel. So here's maybe a guiding question for us today. What was your first experience of the power of Jesus? When did you realize that you could not save yourself and that God had to do it? In that moment, your faith connected you to God's power. And it will keep you connected to God's power. See, we miss it when we think that the gospel is only for unbelievers. The gospel is not just how we begin this Christian life but the way we grow in following Jesus. This is why the gospel isn't just the diving board into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. That means the gospel can help us overcome our differences relationally, politically, racially, culturally. In every way, it is the only sure, true answer to healing and love. So first, let's, let's think about how, how to appreciate this book by, by looking at the writer Paul, because many of us may understand what his background is. Some of us may not. So let's just understand who this writer is. Paul was a former Pharisee. This was a group of Jewish leaders who were hyper-devoted to the law of God. Uh, Philippians tells us Paul was not just any Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was chosen to be trained under the most sought-after teacher of his day, Gamaliel. He was incredibly intelligent, fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and very likely Latin as well. Paul would have memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. How many of you have fallen asleep just trying to read them? He memorized them. 
And they not just memorized, but he would have been drilled on knowing the nuances of the language, the cultural context, and how each verse had been applied and interpreted throughout history. In his letter, Paul uses more than 100 Old Testament questions, quotations, and frequently intentionally borrows words from the Old Testament as well, summarizing biblical themes and terms. He was zealous, not just for knowing the laws, but for keeping them. Paul said, I was so zealous that I was even willing to kill for God's glory, which is what Paul did. He, for a while, was a religious terrorist. He thought Christians were enemies of God, and he participated in and eventually led the way in the murder of people in the early church. We see Paul first doing this with with Stephen in Acts 7, the execution there. Acts continues showing how Paul continues to terrorize the church, dragging men and women to prison and to death until Jesus appeared to Paul and blinded him and and let him know who he was, that he really was Jesus. Uh, Before he was a Christian, Paul was called Saul. After he converted to become a Christian, he was named Paul. As a Christian, Paul looked back at his previous life, life with remorse. We see it in a number of places in his own writing. He says, for, in one place, for I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Because of this, Paul is emphatic about certain doctrines. He knows the dangers of legalism and man-made rules, and that's why you see that he opposes anything that goes against and attacks the grace of God and the gospel of God. Paul is adamantly opposed to, we might call it, religion today because it brings out the worst in us. It brings out pride and self-centeredness and judgmentalness and self-righteousness. Paul is adamantly for the gospel because it teaches the opposite of religion. See, gospel teaches us God offers salvation not as a reward, but rather as a, a gift for the Jew and the Gentile, basically for everyone. If anyone wants to repent and turn to God, realizing that God can save them and just committing their life to him, they can be saved. Although Paul was remorseful of his past, interestingly enough, he also lived extremely confident. Confident not in himself, but in the message of the gospel. I mean, think about it. Why is Paul willing to go all over the world to places people don't want him to come to, to people who he never met, to endure unspeakable hardships to share this message? It's because he, this guy who had memorized so much scripture, finally realized that every part of the scripture, written by 30 different authors over 1,500 years, consistently told one story, and that story was about Jesus. That's the reason we did the one big story series last year. Paul saw that all religions teach the same type of thing. They teach, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel flips this and says, I am accepted and loved, and therefore I obey. See, Paul wrote more of the New Testament books than any other author. 13 out of the 27 books are written by him over a period of 15 years. And Luke, who was Paul's doctor and Paul was his pastor, wrote Acts in which chapters 13 through 28 are mainly about Paul, meaning the majority of the New Testament is either written by Paul, about Paul, or written by someone working closely with Paul. He's that important. Paul focused 
on the gospel message transforming the entire Roman Empire. That was his calling, to go to the Gentiles. And it's hard to imagine Christianity taking so effective root in the Greco-Roman world without Paul. He is the centerpiece of the rapid spread of the gospel. Paul had a relationship with Jesus that was fully established on the love of God. We'll read later, Paul, could, 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 Paul knew that he could never be separated from the love of God, even though he was a sinner who had persecuted the church. He could never be separated from the love of God. It's also important to know how much Paul sacrificed for what he believed. He had dual citizenship. He was a Jewish citizen and he was a Roman citizen at the same time. He, he was prestigious as part of a religious group that was powerful. He was most likely wealthy, and he had a lot of power himself. He was the rising star of his day, and he gave it all up to serve Jesus. He gave up his social status, his safety, his finances. Paul was and continues to be helpful to the church because instead of aspects of Christianity being gray, something that changes over time, and you get to kind of pick and choose what you believe, Paul presents the gospel as unchanging because God does not change, and sin does not change, and the answer to the human problem of sin does not change either. See, Paul was so good at logic, I heard from several sources, but I couldn't trace it all the way back, but the sources I trust, they're pretty, pretty credible generally. They used to say that the first 100 years of Harvard's law school, they actually required first-year students to analyze Romans as part of the curriculum. Because Paul was so adept at building an argument, they needed to learn how to build their case. Regardless, a quick Google search shows that many law schools, even today, and many law school publications have written articles. I even saw a 367-page thesis paper on Paul's ability to create a compelling argument written by one of the best law schools in the nation. Paul starts with a common experience, and he shows us how this theory, the gospel, best explains the reality of life. And as he continues, he actually raises objections and answers them and shows us that these objections that our culture typically has actually strengthen the case for the love of God and the power of the gospel. So today we start and pick up again where Jeremy left off last week, Romans 1.18. Thank you, Jeremy. It starts kind of a, kind of a difficult passage, but we're not going to deal with the most controversial passage part of it until next week. Paul begins to build his case for why this gospel is the only answer to humanity's problems. So Paul begins by pointing out how all are accountable before God because God's existence is obvious to everyone. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So let's focus on that last statement. By ungodliness and righteousness, unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's he saying? What he's saying is you, all of us, know the truth, but you purposely push it down. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. So when it comes to the knowledge of God, Tim Keller kind of echoes this and puts it this way. He says, we know, but we don't know, because we don't want to know. 
I know that can be a little confusing, so let me clarify it with this illustration from World War II. At the end of World War II, the, the Allies' forces liberated a town in Germany where the first Nazi concentration camp was discovered, and uh, they were trying to cover it up, but they got there in time and they saw hundreds of bodies. So General Patton arrived a few hours later, and upon seeing it, he vomited because the horror of it was so awful. The next day, Patton brought the mayor and his wife from the city to see it for themselves. He's thinking they had to know that it was happening in their own town. So Patton then proceeded to have the mayor and every able-bodied person in the town dig graves and bury each person. They had a funeral service afterward, and after that, the mayor and his wife went home and hung themselves. But before they hung themselves, they left this note. We didn't know but we knew. That's what Keller and Paul are referring to. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. The truth of God is way too uncomfortable. It requires us to change too much. So we know, but subconsciously we choose not to know. We'll come back to this idea a little bit more, but let's keep moving through the text. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He's saying we as humanity, all of us, regardless of where we live in the world, are without excuse when it comes to God. God has shown himself in us and to us. Now, in theological terms, this is a term called general revelation. It's distinguished from an idea called specific revelation. Specific revelation refers to Scripture. He specifically dictated Scripture to us, revealed it to us. General revelation states that in creation, God is evident to us all. Now, there are multiple examples of this uh, and arguments of general revelation, but here are a few. One of them goes, in in this world, if, if the Big Bang happened 14 billion years ago, then the question is, where did that original something come from? Where did the materials come out of nothingness from? The materials have produced life. They had to come from somewhere. Even devout atheist Richard Dawkins agrees this is an issue, but, but he kind of says, don't worry, one day we'll find out what it is, which is kind of a leap of faith, isn't it, for him? We see another argument on, on this, on how God has shown himself to be real and how finely tuned our creation is. I mean, think about it. The more science learns, the more amazing we see it is how precise many multiple factors need to be. They need to be just right for human life to exist. There's lots of ways to talk about it, but one of the ways is our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon, and 0.03% carbon dioxide. Any significant difference will make the atmosphere turn from life to death. If the oxygen levels fall slightly off and drop by 6%, we'd all suffocate. If they rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a fireball and we'd all die. If carbon dioxide were 3% instead of 0.03%, the earth would either become an oven or have no atmosphere at all and we'd all be dead. 
If Earth was 2% closer to the sun, our planet would be too hot for water and we'd all die. The tilt of the Earth set at 23.5 degrees is perfect for temperature and tides, but if the tilt got off, the temperatures would be extreme and you can say it with me, we'd all die. And if Jupiter wasn't the size that it is, and the exact orbit that it is, astronomers predict we'd be experiencing 10,000 times more asteroid strikes here on Earth, and we'd be pummeled, and we'd all die. Now, some say we're just lucky. In such a big universe like ours, our planet was bound to exist, and we just happened to be on it. However, scientists say the odds of a planet like Earth existing are so astronomical that it defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin every second and having it come up heads for 10 billion years in a row. This really points to the belief that there is a God who created the heavens and the Earth. But we know, but we don't know, because we don't want to know. See, not only does creation show God to us, there are things within us that tell us that we are more than just an accident of biology. How do you explain our longings for love, for meaning, or even eternity? We long for love to last beyond this world. We continue to seek things that this life cannot give. C.S. Lewis looked at our desires in another way. He says, a baby feels hungry and there is food. A duck wants to swim and there is water. Humans feel sexual desires and there is sex. These desires point to a God who created us and provides for us. How do we explain bravery and love and heroism, the kind that we celebrate on Memorial Day? How do we explain feelings of guilt and moral obligation common to all people in all cultures across all of history. I mean, think about it. A cat doesn't feel remorse for playing with a mouse before it kills it and eats it. It's not that the cats are evil, as some would debate. It's just their nature. They don't live racked with guilt. But as humans, we have some kind of idea that we need to live right. Because one day we'll be held accountable for how we've lived and what we've done. God is evident to us and in us. However, we suppress the truth. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. Let's move on. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, we don't. I think it's a lot of times we don't really want to know God or glorify Him or show Him our gratitude. We want to do what we want to do with our lives. We don't want a God who is holy. We don't want a God who we have to acknowledge gives us all of our gifts and all of our talents and all the provision that we have. We want to use what we've been given on ourselves and the way we want to use it. We want to think that we are self-made people, that we don't owe God anything. It reminds me of a kind of a Brian Regan uh, stand-up comedy skit called The Me Monster. Anybody heard him do this? I won't do it well. You're probably not even going to laugh, but I'll, I'll at least tell you the truth of it. The Me Monster is that person at the party who manages to always turn the conversation back toward themselves, right? You can never top him. Any story you say, he's got a bigger story. 
And Regan says to that, he, he kind of wishes he could actually walk on the moon so he'd have a comeback. Oh yeah, well I walked on the moon because nobody can beat that. Just to shut them up at the parties. You know, we may be more socially adept than the me monster. But our hearts often reflect that we want to be the center of our story. We want to make the rules. We want to be comfortable. We know what's best for me, for us. Paul reacts to that and goes on and says it this way. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Denial, it's a powerful thing, isn't it, in life? We all see denial in our own lives and the lives of those around us. I mean, one simple example that some of you may experience, let's say the school has proof that your child cheated on a test. You just can't believe it's true. So you come up with a different explanation regardless of the evidence presented. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. The same thing applies to God. We may not want to admit there is an all-powerful God, and so we suppress the truth. We keep trying to push that beach ball down under the water. There have been some incredible atheist intellectuals over the last century who have become Christians like T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and A.N. Wilson and others, and they all have you know, initials, so they must be really smart, right, because they don't go by their names. These intellectual giants all said what brought them to faith was not a new argument or new evidence, but it was simply admitting to themselves that they always knew there was a God. They eventually stopped trying to keep that beach ball under the water and instead let it surface and they just deal with it and let it stay there. I mean, how else do you explain something like the Alka Indians who had for many centuries no contact with the outside world? Eventually, outsiders were able to get in and, and get to know them a little bit and the Alka Indians shared that they would attack and brutalize neighbors and it wasn't because they were ignorant. They said they actually knew that they were doing what was something that was wrong and offensive to whatever gods were out there in the universe. It simply comes down to the main question. Do I really want the truth? Do I want to admit what I know? And maybe more importantly, what that admission requires of me. Paul goes on and says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, we are created for worship. Anthropologists who study people say all people worship something. It's inside of us. Even if you're not religious, you worship something. We live for something. Something captures our imagination. Something captures our allegiance. And we look to something to calm our fears and something we can pursue with passion that we can't live without. Without God, we find something to replace Him. We change our object of worship to something we think we can control. And these objects serve us. One object of worship today, even though we make it such an important deal, we can make this into an idol, is relationships. Relationships help us feel like our lives have purpose and meaning. We hear it in lyrics. Justin Bieber, baby, without you I can't face life. John Legends, you're my end and my beginning. Played at half the weddings now. I give my all to you. 
If we go back further in time, who remembers this classic? I can't live if living is without you. I can't live. I can't give anymore. Come on, 70s people. If that isn't worship, I don't know what it is. See, we want to worship something, but we want it to be what we want. It's like the astronomers from a long time ago who believed the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around us. See, that's kind of what Paul is almost saying here. We act like we are the center of the universe. And any God needs to orbit around us. That God needs to do what we want it to do. And if it doesn't, we get mad. And we refuse to believe there is a God. See, Paul describes how this approach leaves us. In verse 24, he goes on saying, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. See, God gave them, He gives us up, it says meaning he gave us what we wanted. He allowed us to be the center of our own universe. A similar analogy could be if, if the earth rebelled against the sun, saying, why do I always have to be spinning around you and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put myself at the center? The problem with that is the, the sun is 30,000 times bigger than the earth, which gives it the gravitational capacity to keep everything in orbit. The earth can't do that. So if the earth rebels and says, I'm going to be at the center, and the sun says, okay, what's going to happen? The solar system is going to collapse, not because the sun caused it, but rather because it allowed the earth to have what it wanted. And that's what God did with humanity. We insisted on our own way, and he gave us our own way. He let us have our own way. See, that's where the reason marriages are wrecked and fallen apart today. That's the reason disease exists. That's the reason we experience relational pain. And that's the reason that there's brokenness in all of our creation and the cosmos. And it's fall- this, this is where we'll pick up next week. We're going we're gonna to stop right here. We're going to pick up that. But this is the reason things are broken. And I don't like ending on this note because if we don't know the gospel that Paul speaks of, this is just frankly depressing. But next week, we'll see one of the most fundamental truths of the gospel in the midst of one of the most provocative passages that our culture views as provocative today in the Bible. But in it, we're going to see how the truth Paul is presenting is the only foundation for compassion and healing the differences in our society. But for now, we can rest that even though God said you get to choose, And you get what you ask for. Even in that, we know that from the rest of the Bible that God keeps coming after us. That even when we've been faithless, he is faithful to pursue us. See, in Jesus, God pours out all the judgment that is rightfully ours on himself so that we can be released from the punishment if we'll accept that and trust him and follow him as Lord. So how do we walk this out this week? There's a couple questions I think we can ask ourselves prayerfully and ponder and maybe discuss over the lunch table today. Where do I know the truth, but I don't want to know it? I'm avoiding it. Another question. 
In what ways am I making God orbit around me rather than me orbiting around God? And maybe a way to find that is to look at the areas where you're angry at God right now. And third question, how can I worship God more fully for who he is? Would you stand with me as we pray? God, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you inspired Paul to, to give us these lessons. That you spoke to us through him. Lord, I know in my own life and I know for all of us it's so easy to live in denial. I pray that your spirit would graciously come to us this week in conversation and thoughts and prayer and that you'd help us to see the areas we're denying reality. And that you would come to us by your spirit and that you'd help us to grow, to experience all the love all the freedom, all the healing you want us to experience. I'm just grateful, God, that you are so direct and so merciful to do that with us. So Lord, now as we turn our hearts to, to sing this song, Lord, would you let the words frame our worship? Would you hear our words as honoring you? And would you just continue to solidify in each one of us how great and awesome and powerful and loving and kind and patient you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.